often think about if my ancestors were trying to come to this country today, they couldn't. Mm. They just couldn't. It wouldn't have been possible. We brought them over for cheap labor. That still happens to some degree. It's just hard. It's really, really hard now. Um, so I am just feel always feeling lucky that through my birth, I inherited so much and I want to give that back to people mm -hmm. who are trying to get here or trying to make a better life or just trying to exist. That was Melissa Camara. She creates mixed media paintings and installations that are research-based investigations into species extinction, globalization, and human migration. Her portraits are fictional, but they're based in empirical fact. She combs through the public record of people's lives, collecting information to better understand them beyond what DNA can tell us. She includes elements and details of what she finds into her paintings. She says that the Philippines are a confluence of so many tragedies, politically, economically, and environmentally. There's really no work for the people who aren't middle class. So they move, they immigrate, for opportunity, and to send money back to their family. This is the story that Melissa is telling, the one she's trying to better understand. And as a descendant of Filipino and Lebanese immigrants herself, it's a personal one. She's currently in residence at the Anchorage Museum, exploring the Filipino diaspora through research and interviews. To help make sense of all this information, she's putting two podcasts together. Drift, Immigration and Identity in America is an interview series, and Land and People looks at practitioners and people with ancestral ties to the land. There's also a component of cataloging what the land looks like right now for future reference. She says that as she's interviewing people, they're also unpacking the psychology of internalized racism and what that looks like. It's complicated because there are so many facets to this project. There's immigration, there's the socioeconomic issues, the cost of living, and it's all under the umbrella of capitalism. So here she is, Melissa Camara. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. Yesterday, when we were talking, you said that it's great that your last name is Chimera. Yeah. Because you do a lot of things. What did you mean by that? Okay, so first of all, it's not my last name. It's my husband's. My okay. actual maiden name is Dumaran, which is a Filipino name. But my husband's name is Chimera, which has multiple meanings, right? So it is a medical term for two biological I think it's two distinct biological entities in one. And then it also refers to the Greek monster that has a lion's head, the body of a goat, and the tail. Oh, did I get that right? A snake's tail. And yeah, it's just a changeling, basically. And so I do so many different things. I guess I get bored easily. Well, I'm not really bored. I'm just interested in all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I started off as a music major in opera, and then I switched 180 and went into environmental science and conservation, and I've been doing that since the mid-90s. 
Now I do some fire communication related to, to science and wildfire, which is, of course, as we know, a huge worldwide problem. Mm-hmm. And I am an, a visual artist, uh, a working studio artist and a mom. So yeah, there's quite a few things, <laughs> but I try to do, I try to on a good day, try to do one at a time and not multiple. And sometimes I fail at that. Often I fail at that. So there we are. <laughs> well, I think that that's just the nature of doing a lot of things at once is one or two, depending on how many you're doing at the same time are just maybe not going to be done as well as you could if you gave them your full attention. It's true. It really is. I try to dedicate certain days to do certain things. And then I, you know, get sidelined like we all do, right? It's just Mm -hmm. life. It's life in this 21st century where we're just trying to keep up with the email and, you know, communications and things and run around and do this and that. But yeah, I really have slowed down in the last two years. I live, I, despite everything I just said, I really do live a pretty ordinary slow life day to day because I'm here in Hawaii Island, mm-hmm. um, living with my family and, you know, my nine-year-old, my husband, and, you know, we work from home and I drive my son three minutes down the road to his school. And that's most days for me, you know, so it, I, it's a, it's a beautiful thing, right? Um, yeah, um, it's great. Something that just came to mind, you know, thinking about how you're doing all of these things and you said that you try to maybe designate, you know, Monday or Tuesday, I'm going to do this on that day. Mm -hmm. Did it take you time to get to that point? Or I guess in my mind, I'm just thinking like maybe sometime (laughs) in the past, it was like, you're trying to do everything all at once. Yes. Well, I'm 50. So (laughs) it took some time to figure out how to work it all out. And honestly, I did leave the National Park Service after a a long time working in conservation to become a full-time mom and artist. Mm. And then now I'm back working for an organization called Hawaii Wildfire, uh, working on wildfire science communication and uh, a couple days a week and um, yeah and and it's working out so far my son's older now so he doesn't need me you know every moment of the day Mm -hmm. but you know we all go through that trying to trying to figure out what's priority but the studio work is the priority after being a mom and and you know a partner it is it is the thing that i am most energized by and that keeps me going and i love being able to do the other conservation work and all of that it's really important to stay grounded but the studio practice is primary for me you know before we get into talking about your artwork i wonder if you could help me understand you know what your work in conservation look like sure so i Went to University of Hawaii at Manoa on the island of Oahu in Hawaii, and we I studied natural resources management, which basically just means like land stewardship, taking care of the land, using your science tools and other things to figure out how to save species from extinction. And that was because we are sadly a global extinction hotspot where we've lost two thirds of our native bird life and many, many other 
plants and animals, and of course the native people have suffered terribly also. And that's due to the fact that we are the most geographically isolated landmass in the world. We are 2,500 miles from the nearest continent. And as a result, people and plants and animals all lost their natural immunodefenses and otherwise from things that were to arrive later during Captain Cook's voyages. Mm -hmm. So all to say that everything that you see in Hawaii below 3,000 feet, generally speaking, is not from here. Although we'd have many indigenous crops and plants from the Pacific, the things that are unique to Hawaii are not a present. And I worked for a very long time to conserve those things. And I started off in my art, the where that dovetail with my art was um, cataloging our rarest species before they went extinct, some of which have already, sadly, in my lifetime that I painted. Um, I can give you examples of that, but essentially it's been my work traveling to remote parts of Hawaii, camping for many days in my younger times with field crews, um, tagging rare plants, building fences to protect them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sort of work. And so what I realized through art was that we needed to speak to a broader audience, not just ourselves, not just our academics, not just people in our field, but we needed to do something outside of that. And that's when I started really hearkening back to the art that I had been doing all my life and taking that more seriously. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if if cataloging species before they went extinct affected you this way, but mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, if I was out there and I'm having kind of like this personal moment with these animals and I'm spending a lot of time drawing them, once they went extinct, I feel like it would affect me more than if, you know, I read about it on the internet. Oh, yeah. I mean, the grief that the conservationists feel, I think, is real. I think most many people have that in the world, given all the crises. Mm -hmm. And I would say for me, because I was a manager managing land, managing crews, dealing with budgets, you know, you just turn that side of you off. You have to because you have a job to do, right? I mm -hmm. mean, you're in triage mode. And when you when I, at least for me, when I started expressing that in art, all of the emotion came forward in the art, right? I mean, you can't help but that do that cry over canvases. I've done that many times. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think it's real. And it's a way of, you know, dealing with the loss of things, but also highlighting what's left and showing people that we can have and still do have connection with many different things. When did you start drawing these animals, you know, when you were cataloging them? I have always been doing some kind of art, um, you know, my whole life. So I've been painting and drawing since I was young. Mm -hmm. um, but I officially started my, I would say, studio practice like 2006. That's, that's when I first sold my first painting. That's when I started really going down that path. Mm -hmm. What did you paint and draw when you were young? Oh, everything. People. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're just like, I took life drawing classes in college. I took 
you know, I was just always drawing. I was always doing that. I have, there's a picture of me, you know, sitting at a, like a kitchen or, or dining room table, like with a drawing pad and like looking very serious. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you just draw what's around you. In Hawaii, it's so beautiful. Yeah. Of course, it's, you can imagine. So you're just drawing the plants, the animals, landscapes. I was really interested in people, I think from a young age, and that's continued uh, in, through what I'm doing now too. Why do you think you were so interested in people at at a young age? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I was probably the family historian of the grandchildren, I'd say. So I was always asking my grandmother about her immigrant stories. Not that she was an immigrant, but her ancestors. Uh, this is on my mom's side. And I don't know. I think my mom, being a narrative poet, this is her career also, and storytelling has all, I mean, it's a human um, endeavor, right, is to mm -hmm. tell stories and to connect with people. It's like in our DNA. So I think that just expresses itself in drawing, maybe. You said that your mom is a narrative poet. Did you grow up with poetry? I did, yes. So she is actually a lyric and narrative poet, and um, she has a long, long career She's won all sorts of awards, National Endowment for the Arts and so forth. And um, yeah, she also has found her telling of our stories through language. And I think that's a huge, huge influence on how I perceive and render, mm -hmm. you know, the world in, in the art, in the, in the two-dimensional form. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I've always kind of understood poetry as like drawing or painting with your words mm -hmm. you know and mm -hmm. and it kind of seems like there might be a parallel there between you and your mom yes absolutely there is we are entwined and we've done projects together for the Sharjah Biennial, for the Arab American National Museum we're going to Toledo next week to the University of Toledo mm -hmm. to give a lecture on what we're talking about right now um, yeah, we definitely have worked and we, our work resonates with one another for sure. It just can't, you just can't help it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And has your mom ever done any poetry about immigration? She has really focused on personal stories, you know, um, related to our family history. And so from the personal lens, yes, I would say so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, she has written a great deal about the really sad parts of our family history, her father losing uh, all of his family except for two siblings during the Great War and the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. There's a, so much there. Um, intergenerational trauma, you know, that happens not just to the Lebanese, but also to many people throughout the world who have to leave their homeland mm -hmm. in search of something else. Um, and, and again, it's all told through the personal and parts of it, because it's poetry, it's not documentary work, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, there are these jumping off points in which fiction takes over and a certain truth is told through that. Um, yeah, so she has really rendered these incredible stories of survival, of sadness, of loss through her work in contrast 
in some ways a little bit to what I do, which is rendering some of my portraits. I mean, they're definitely fictional portraits for sure. They're, they're, they're not meant to be photographs per se mm -hmm. with captions, but they are based on empirical information. And so for me going through the public record of people's lives, where they lived, what ports they went to, what streets they lived on, what jobs they had, what jobs they still have, all of those things are important to me. I think it satisfies sort of my empirical interest more so that's more interesting to me than running a dna test which is like just tells you where your ancestors live nothing else yeah um so yeah i like to go through the archives i like to go through the public record i like to go through photographs and then i create a composite oftentimes if i have my interpretation of that person and sometimes it relies on people on their images from the past and sometimes sometimes they're blended with things from now right so mm -hmm. That's where I go in those portraits. What's it like for you when you have, you know, all of those materials in front of you? Oh my gosh, it's really confusing at first. <laughs> 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 I think maybe you as a journalist can appreciate this. You're like looking at a wall of things. You're like, okay, how do I tell this story? Yeah. You yeah. know, um, it's, ah. Uh, yeah, it's it's really challenging. I think I was saying this to Fran, like it coming from Alaska where I just did this residency with the Anchorage Museum, you know, you're swimming in people's lives and their details and their stories and their pictures and all of that, and you're trying to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. At some point, you have to take a certain point of view, as, as you know, from being a journalist, and um, decide what it is you want to say in that painting. Um, and I had a curator long ago ask me, what is it you want to say? You know, there's biographical information in here, but what do you want the person in front of you to come away with? Mm -hmm. So that's a really good litmus for me. Of course, they're all different. The stories of people that I tell through my painting. Mm -hmm. um, but there are some commonalities, right, with immigration. You know, there is this feeling for new immigrants all over the world of feeling displaced and of drifting between identities. And sometimes that will just take a long time to figure out. Sometimes it never gets figured out. Sometimes people will figure out exactly who they are, mm -hmm. but there is that space in which people are trying to understand their own identities in transition. And that's the space that I'm most interested in is understanding how new people going into new places configure themselves in the world, especially since we're seeing the biggest flux of immigration the world has seen since the Second World War, right? We're seeing this happen en masse for so many different reasons. And so my interest is to figure out how people negotiate that physically and also um, emotionally and psychologically. Yeah, and I wonder, because I feel like I'm like this sometimes with the podcast and maybe I don't fully understand, you know, certain elements of a person's story on first listen. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I put it out there, yeah. you know, and I'm like, I know that there is important stuff in here and maybe it's not up to me to understand it. Mm -hmm. Do you ever feel that way? Yeah, I do. I do. I don't think we can ever fully understand 
another human being. I mean, like yeah. even our partner for 20 years, right? <laughs> <laughs> even our children, we can never fully know. Uh, it's all, it's a mystery. And that's the beauty also about being in the studio is like the painting part of it is mysterious. Also, there's just mm -hmm. alchemy that happens. There's just things that happen that you can't explain there. You can go into, and I'm sure you feel this way too, you know, with this project, you can go into a space intending one thing and then something else happens altogether and yep. th there it is there's the magic right yeah and and you put it out there for the world and then the second part of that is what do people feel when they look or experience something like the work for me is never complete until it's leaving my hands and going into somebody else's you know space and mm -hmm. reality it's it's just otherwise sitting there. So you're right. It, it isn't really for me to understand, but um, you try to still, at least with like two-dimensional work, which is static and just going to stand there for the, till the end of time, mm -hmm. <laughs> hopefully, yeah. you, you do try to come up with some um, thread, right? That Mm -hmm. that will make sense or not make sense to the viewer. I mean, it's it's so individual, this art making thing and then the experience of it. For someone who might not be familiar with your art, could you, I know it would take the entire podcast <laughs> for you to, you know, sit here and explain like every single piece, but maybe, maybe one that is uh, emblematic of, you know, your artwork that focuses on immigration yes there is a painting of my great aunt malvina who was my grandfather's sister she was one of the two surviving siblings that endured a crazy um ordeal well let me back up and say that she was born in the united states in the late eight uh early 1900s, I think, or late 1800s, anyway, um, when her parents were migrant workers in the Northeast. And uh, they left to go back to Mount Lebanon right on the eve of World War I, sadly. My grandfather stayed and searched for them, but she and her brother endured the most horrific ordeal walking for 19 days from Mount Lebanon to Damascus, then getting kidnapped, mm. and then escaping her kidnappers, enduring physical harm, and then cutting her hair short to pass as a boy so she could find her way home. And meanwhile, her father, mother, and brothers and sisters were dying beside her of the 1918 flu and starvation. And the only reason we even know about her is because she talked to a reporter right after the ordeal when she and her brother, Eddie, landed in, um, in New York. And so I've created this painting of her, which is, so her, the picture of her are, is, are two images in one. One, the back image is a painted portrait of her from a family photo on the eve of World War I. And the front image is of a picture I found of her on her emergency uh, refugee passport I found in the public archives of her and with this vacant look after having survived this ordeal. And the two are stitched, they're two in one. So it's backwards and forwards in time. And then um, across this painting, and oh, and by the way, that's transparent silk. This photographic portrait on top of the painted one. Mm -hmm. And then on 
the bottom of that, beneath her, is in very large letters, which are um, comes printed directly from her emergency passport, are silk, burned silk letters, also transparent, with the word native, very, very large, sprawled across. And there are other little pieces, if you go close up, you can see words like father deceased, forehead wound marks, those all came from her records. Mm-hmm. And it calls into question, like, who is really Native and who really is not Native? Who is an immigrant? Who isn't an immigrant? It just it doesn't answer any of those things. It just presents her mm-hmm. and her documentation. And so the irony, of course, was that she, she my Aunt Malvina was born in the United States, but she had to put the word native on there so that she could return not as and not be rejected Mm -hmm. so that's super interesting to me um and that word is so loaded so it's tricky right yeah yeah (laughs) talking about these things and interpreting them but i would say that's definitely the painting for me that encapsulates her journey her immigration story and how she came to find a second life in America, so to speak, even though she'd been born here. Yeah, and I feel like it's a great representation of how complicated these things can be. Mm-hmm. You know, you as you were explaining the the painting, I mean, there's just so much information packed into there. And there's mm-hmm. so much nuance that that belongs to that story that um, is so much different than like looking at someone's DNA. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I know people really do put a lot of stock into the DNA thing, but you know, uh, you know, from my biologist husband's point of view, <laughs> mm-hmm. it doesn't really, you know, we're all more similar than we are distinct, right? Mm -hmm. We all know that we are just all the same, right? Yeah. And then there's these variations of little things, tiny little genotype things, and uh, phenotype, really, to be to be totally correct about it. And then there's the story of like, where we our ancestors lived, which is I think what our DNA tells us where they lived, not nothing, nothing, you know, endemic to who we are. Because you know, who we are is so complicated, right? It's not mm-hmm. our DNA. It's it's these other, it's these lived experiences. Yeah. I mean, yes, it is in our DNA, but it's also these lived experiences, right? So yeah, it, it is. I do try to convey that. And the one thing I haven't even mentioned about her portraits, there's there's so much more. There's her fingerprint on there. There's, there's references to, you know, red and white and blue and, you know, all of that, all mm-hmm. of this sort of thing. So when you're looking at it, you're like, struck by many different things um, all at once. And so I hope that it'll at least keep people in front of the painting for more than 30 seconds. That's my goal. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to fully understand it, I think you'd have to be in front of it for more than 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we live in an age where people are looking at these images on their phone and, you know, I do that. It's just the experience of being with something is altogether different. Yeah. I wonder what drew you to examining immigration. And I know you mentioned your family heritage earlier, but I wonder if you can get into it a little more. Sure. Well, because we've been, or I've been examining 
the erasure of species, mm -hmm. I realize they're just part and parcel with the erasure of culture and peoples, particularly marginalized people, especially in the age of Trump, let's be real, and the, and the rise of authoritarianism throughout the world and the hardening of borders. This is something that is just very acute right now in this world. And so I started to look at that in 2016, particularly because of my family's connection with the last remaining sugar mill, which closed an industry of over a hundred years, a cash crop that fueled Hawaii for better or for worse in many different directions and brought many different people, including Filipino immigrants. So I started with their story and I started with my the Lebanese side and presented that in an exhibition called Migrant at the Honolulu Museum of Art. And then Flash forward to 2020 or 2021 when I had heard about these fishermen in Honolulu Harbor, mm -hmm. South Asian migrants who are on two-year contracts. Um, and many of them sign up for multiple contracts because the money is really good. However, they are exempt from U.S. labor laws. And so they literally cannot step foot on U.S. soil. They have no status no visa, nothing. So they sit in behind the fences at the Honolulu Harbor. And I had to talk to those guys because I couldn't believe this was going on. And then I also found, you know, some information about their situation through the Georgetown Law Review. And I also did speak with both um, doctor who does clinics down there twice a week and also a pastor who provides donations spiritual comfort and so forth mm -hmm. and i got to really understand that the men who are down there in the fishing boats are you know they're not victims right they are choosing to do this they are not forced to do this they don't have to give up their passports like we've heard in other places migrants have to do that they come back multiple years multiple contracts at the same time though, and they have great, you know, joy and camaraderie and, you know, all of that came through in my interviews. However, the Philippines, and this happened to be the men that I was speaking with are, the Philippines are a confluence of so many tragedies, politically, land ownership wise, environmentally, uh, with typhoons, strip mining, the loss of, native mangroves, so many things are happening. There are so many incredible natural resources that, you know, for people who don't have, you know, who aren't middle class, they really have no options for work. There's nothing, nothing for them. So in that sense, there is no agency. So I really wanted to tell their stories and that of others who were undocumented and documented. I wanted to compare them with my family's stories. And then of course that leads me to the Anchorage Museum in telling the stories of those people that are on the boats did it surprise you in any way did you go into it thinking one way and then you know by the end of it you realize maybe it's not that way i did i w was thinking you know you hear terrible stories about how migrants are treated throughout the world, especially Filipino migrants, you know, of which I'm familiar. Mm -hmm. And of course, this happens to other people too. And you think that, you know, things are so are terrible for them, which I, I imagine not being able to leave the boats and go beyond the fences is really 
kind of a prison in a sense. At the same time, though, they have, you know, great joy too. And, and that's everywhere in the world, right? People are just dealing. They're happy and they're sad at the same time. It's just life. Yeah. But it's harder. It's harder because, you know, they don't have the freedoms that we have and they have no status on the, on the boats. Um, it's, I mean, it's a life I can't imagine. I mean, um, so yes, in some ways, talking with them about their stories and realizing you know, why they're doing this. I think the other thing that surprised me too was how many generations they're supporting, not just children, but aunties, uncles, grandparents, hmm. their remittances, meaning their payments being sent back are what is fueling the GDP in the Philippines, right? Hmm. Okay. That's been going on since the Marcos era. era. Yeah, it's remittances are what the Filipino people survive on, at least in the lower classes economic classes, that is. Um, so yeah, that surprised me to hear how many generations are supporting. And what didn't surprise me is just how hard it is for them to be separated, physically separated from their from their families for years. Mm. Yeah. And um, this is a common story. You know, you get to America for better opportunity and you have to leave people behind. This is like the story forever, right? Mm -hmm. So that part of it's not surprising. And, and it's, it's, heartbreaking, right? I mean, I talked to a woman whose portrait I did called The Caregiver. I'm looking at it right now. And she took care of her mother. She was undocumented. And over because she overstayed her visa, her mother was legal and she had cancer at the time. And she was banned. Her daughter was banned for 10 years um, for overstaying. She couldn't get sponsored. Of course, once she overstayed your visa, you can't get sponsored. So she's now back in the United States on a green card with her son, but she can't get married to her partner because she would be better to wait until she gets citizenship. So she and her partner are separated. I've heard this story so many times. It's not just Filipinos. It's the, the story. And so people would be like, oh, that's chain migration. That's wrong. And it's like, well, we benefited, all of us here from chain migration, except if you're Native American you definitely did not benefit from that yeah <laughs> in some ways right so it is complicated in what way do maybe you hope or maybe you push for the work that you do to help americans understand or better understand the immigrant experience in the united states that is a tough question to answer because as we were saying earlier, art experiences are so individual. Mm -hmm. I never try to confuse the really hard work of social justice to having created something that's hanging in a museum or a gallery. Mm -hmm. They're two different things. If we as artists or novelists could just magically fix all of the awareness problems, we wouldn't have to do the social justice work, right? That would be amazing. <laughs> mm -hmm. But we can at least help shape a narrative that's maybe more positive, And that helps people to understand who people are that they're seeing on television. They're not just abstractions. They're not just numbers. These are lives. Mm -hmm. And so again, if I can help someone stay in front of, oh, Sorry, that was an earthquake. 
It was an earthquake? Which is which happens a lot here. Yeah, there's oh, that wow. happens quite frequently. Okay. <laughs> okay, where were we? Um, it's gone. Oh, you can just continue. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a little disconcerting. We um we live we have five different volcanoes. Mine is the least likely to be a problem. Or okay. no, it's the second least likely to be a problem. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we have soil, not rock over here. It tells you how old the volcano is. So mm -hmm. the older, the better. Um, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked what you said earlier about art and social justice being two different things. You know, mm -hmm. I, I had never thought about it mm -hmm. and I, I guess I just really like that. Yeah. I, um, I honestly don't put stock in being able to change people in a mass way. I, I, I put more of what I do into the, into the bucket of we, collectively need to change the narrative. We collectively all need to band together to help change the narrative. And if we all can, in our own individual ways, help with that, then maybe we can move the needle. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that the work isn't gonna make a difference in people's lives, I think it will. But, and if it can help people have conversations that are hard, otherwise hard to have or stop someone in their tracks for like 30 seconds and give them a different point of view, then I feel like I've done my job. Like that's, mm -hmm. that, that's, that's great. Um, and the other part of it is that, you know, we also recognize, or at least I do, you know, keeping optimistic about the incredible positive changes that can happen rapidly if we just decide to do things like Rebecca mm -hmm. Solnit has written about this, like, you know, legalizing gay marriage happened. It's not like it wasn't predicated by decades of work, mm -hmm. but that happened pretty quickly. You know, for the first few months of COVID anyway, we all, the world shut down. We can decide to do things quickly. And we, I think we often overlook how fast things can change. And, and having this sort of inevitability perspective of like, oh, things are so bad and they're always going to be bad. It really robs us of the reality of our own human imagination to change things. So mm -hmm. I, I do feel like we can operate on an individual level and on a collective level. Was there a point or a moment when you decided to, you know, turn these ideas and these observations into a project, that inception, that very first time? 
Yeah. I mean, there are several moments, right? There's the, when I was faced with extinction of the things that I cared about in the mountains. And then when we elected Trump before that, I just saw us going way, way backwards and towards um, demonizing immigrants. And, you know, for this project in Alaska, that's still in formation. And that has led me to understand many different things, which I'm still trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, the Filipino diaspora, which we talked a little bit about before, and what's fueling that and why Filipinos continue to leave and have left for hundreds of years. What that looks like in different places, you know, in California, Hawaii, and Alaska, and also how that interfaces with indigenous people. And I'm still trying to figure that out. So, so yeah, right now, I don't know what the point of view is necessarily on that, but um, I have some ideas. <laughs> what are those ideas? Well, I, you know, at first glance anyway, superficially, it appears there are some interesting parallels between indigenous people and Filipino diaspora, such that you have the colonial piece of that and affecting people mm -hmm. um, in terrible ways, which we all know about. We don't have to go into all of that. But also, there are some differences too. So, you know, the reasons for Filipinos leaving are many, and that can have incredible, wonderful effects in host places, right? Like in Hawaii, where Hawaiians and Filipinos and Chinese and Japanese have been intermarrying for a long, long time. I grew up in a mixed culture. When in Hawaii, you don't have a dominant ethnicity, which is the beautiful thing about growing up here. And um, the little bit I understand about Alaska is you do have intermarrying with native people and Filipinos and with many, many other races too, which you know, can be also a beautiful thing in the mixing and, and reinterpreting of culture, which again, I don't know very much about. Um, and it also is striking to me that immigrants, you know, we all, and by we, I mean, you know, I'm a um, descendant of immigrants and there are many immigrants of different racial groups. We all have to sort of be cognizant of what our impacts are because we've been products of colonialism right mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. all of that has been had terrible impacts i would say in the philippines in terms of like land ownership and the feudal system that is in place there all right maybe the semi-feudal system that's probably being generous and, and you know and thinking about how how that affects native people in places that we land, right? Mm -hmm. like, that is where I'm still trying to think through what that looks like. And I don't know too much about it, but it uh, except to say that Dr. David, EJ David, who I spoke with, you know, is very passionate about, um, you know, really pleading to folks from other places to take the time to understand the indigenous point of view, which I think is really important, especially given our history of colonialism and what mm -hmm. we have endured. And not me personally, but what, you know, people have endured. Um, mm -hmm. 
So I'm sorry, that was a super long answer to your question. It's complicated, no, no. right? <laughs> I think that, I mean, that's kind of what I was asking for, right? You said that these are just thoughts right now mm -hmm. and it sounded exactly like it was. You were working mm -hmm. through it. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, I still will be. I'll be talking to my friend who's Filipino mixed um, Hawaiian therapist tomorrow. She's actually a dear, dear friend of mine from, from um, early days, just to unpack all of this, because I did speak with 12 different people and recorded their stories. And it's, um, it's swimming around in my head right now. Why did you choose to do interviews in Alaska? <laughs> well, I was amazingly invited by the Anchorage Museum as their artist in residence mm -hmm. to interview Filipinos in Alaska because of my work with the diaspora, my own family, and then the um, the folks that I interviewed in my show Remittance. So I was just delighted to come and explore the Filipino diaspora and talk to Filipinos in all different sorts of professions. So, you know, like on the labor side, working in the cannery, all the way up through the academic, everything in between, you know. Um, it was interesting for me to talk to them about their identities and what they're going through or have gone through forming their identities and what shaped that. Do any of those interviews that you did in Alaska come to mind? They do. They do. Many of them do. And they're all different because you have a intergenerational different points of view from people naturally mm -hmm. who are older and people who are younger, you know, who are in their thirties. There are differences, big differences there, you know, with maybe politics and social views being more conservative on the older end and not so much on the younger end. A big one that stands out, we're talking to Dr. EJ David and Dr. Gabe, um, Garcia, both who work in psychology and public health and who are very familiar with the depressing metrics for Asians, Filipinos, and Native people in Alaska in terms of health outcomes. Mm. So um, getting a clear picture of what that looks like from the onset for me was super important, you know, knowing, knowing that perspective and understanding, um, again, as we talked about how that impacts how immigrants um, and Native people relate to one another. That was that was really an interesting piece of you know point of view, and also you know racism straight up you know just mm -hmm. talking about like what Filipinos in Alaska have faced in terms of racism and internally in terms of like their own perspective on that white is better mestiza is better which means mixed mm. is at the top and then indigenous. Filipinos at the bottom of that hierarchy, which has been in place for forever. And bringing that into, um, you know, the mindset as as newcomers, perhaps. And, and then, of course, the, the, the actual racism by other people, other groups, uh, inter, inter, you know, racism, intergroup racism, out-of-group racism, all of that. I didn't grow up with any of that in Hawaii. I was very lucky. I never felt ashamed. I never felt put down. I never felt like less than. And so understanding that point of view was really, wow, it was like life changing. And do you think that 
you never experienced that in Hawaii because because Hawaii is so diverse. I do. I I think you know some have definitely felt that here and have talked about it. You know, it's not to say that Filipinos here don't make fun of other Filipinos and their accents and this that and the other. That definitely happens. I imagine it didn't happen to me. I was probably coming from a privileged background. Okay. <laughs> Socioeconomic maybe had to do with it. I don't know. But um, we definitely have racism in Hawaii for sure. Uh, it's complicated. I fortunately was not the, on the receiving end of, of the hardcore stuff that I hear about, ta- talked about in, um, you know, EJ David's book or, or, you know, others I talked to. Could you get more specific about the people you interviewed in Alaska? And maybe maybe it's just one person, you know, that comes to mind and their story. Yeah, I spoke with a woman who was talking about speaking in, and I don't know if it was Tagalog or or she was speaking in Visayan. But anyway, she was speaking in a Filipino dialect among her colleagues with two others. And mm-hmm. she was chastised by another coworker. And she just was like, is this right? And I was like, no, it's not right. Yeah. <laughs> this is wrong. It's called erasure. And coming from Hawaii, where you're hearing different languages being spoken all the time, like... I said to her, I was like, I don't have a problem with your accent. Mm-hmm. I think it's fine. You speak perfect English. I think it's fine to listen to other languages being spoken. And she's like, yeah, maybe not in Walmart, you know, where it's like really customer service oriented forward. But we were just in a hallway somewhere, you know, not even among the public. And I just thought that is so weird because I hear languages, other languages being, I was just, it just made me aware when I was um, in the doctor's office yesterday, hearing other languages being spoken, like I don't even think about it ever. Mm-hmm. I never think about it. It's just part of my reality. And then to hear someone being chastised for speaking another language in a hallway, it was just, wow, okay, that's the situation now. I'm so glad I didn't have to grow up with that. I wonder how old they were because earlier you talked about the difference between you know, younger generations versus older generations and Mm -hmm. their perspective on, you know, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. She's my age, which am I older? I guess maybe I am. (laughs) (laughs) Middle-aged. Okay. So she was my age and, um, uh, you know, I think she was just like, coming to terms with like, oh, this is just maybe like selective memory. I've had to block a lot of this stuff out. As we were talking, mm-hmm. we were unpacking the psychology of internalized racism mm-hmm. and um, what that looks like and how that feels. And, you know, I, in real time, she was really starting to understand that, I think, both internally and externally. Yeah, I think that those are really, really important and oftentimes like special moments when mm-hmm. you're in an interview and you know as the the interviewer you're watching the interviewee like really Mm, like think mm -hmm. really working through these questions or even having like these realizations Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. yeah it was incredible it was incredible and um 
that's why I want to put their stories out there, mm -hmm. like for them to hear one another, to he learn from and hear one another and, and to hear the commonalities and differences. I think it's so important. You've said this word erasure a few times. Could you explain what you mean by that? Well, through the forces of globalization that have benefited all our lives, um, you know, medicines are now readily available. We can go anywhere in the world. It's rel relatively cheap, at least for those of us in affluent countries to travel the world. And, um, you know, we have massive food production to feed the world. We have all of these incredible things through the benefits of globalization, affluence, and then there are costs too. And mm -hmm. those costs are extinction and erasure of people, particularly in the global South where they're feeling the effects of climate change. Let's just call it what it is, the climate crisis. I, I don't even know why I even keep using that, where I have to retrain myself, the climate crisis. And um, everything's are fast disappearing. So what are we gonna have in a hundred years? And like, we used to be excited. You know, when I was a kid, we we're like, oh, the 21st century. Now, like we talk about it with dread. Mm -hmm. And now we leave a legacy for our children to figure out how to deal with the climate crisis, how to deal with the extinction crisis, how to deal with like the food security issue, how to deal with pandemics. So many different things are, are under threat and we don't have the answers readily in front of us. It's like, there's no one bad actor, right? Like we're all part of this, mm -hmm. which makes it really um, hard to imagine what the solutions are. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I try to look at the edges, the, um, the marginalized edges of things that are fast disappearing. I really think it's important to figure out what those are. Cause like we're in this unprecedented moment of mass extinction and loss of languages and you know we're we're making ourselves through our monocultures through our mono technologies we are making ourselves more brittle and less and and more oh, just more vulnerable to massive disruptions on the scale that we saw with the last pandemic we're just becoming it's it's a little bit freaky and especially for those people who are living in places like bangladesh and you know the atolls and um you know hot places right we're even mm -hmm. seeing the housing crisis like manifest itself in it used to just be la san francisco it's like not that anymore we are seeing our housing inventory disappear and being gobbled up by investment firms, right? And mm -hmm. so at some point we just have to decide what are we gonna do about this issue of globalization? How are we gonna make things more equitable? And I don't know what the answers are. I just know I'm like in the middle of trying to figure it out and I know I'm part of the problem too. <laughs> well, like you said, we all are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you found that doing this research and doing these interviews can take their toll on you emotionally? Yeah. For sure. I mean, as artists, we are living in the realm of emotional, we are conduits for people's emotions and our experiences, right? We have to be, we have to absolutely be the conduits for that. Like the empaths, like the mirroring. Mm -hmm. In my case, when I'm listening to these interviews, I have like the mirroring, um, what's the word? Um, neurology, I guess, uh, where you're just in that person at that moment mm -hmm. when they're talking about it. So of course, you know, that is, 
there's a lot. Um, so, you know, it just takes time to figure out what you're going to, what you're going to make of this and how you're going to bring those stories forward. And, uh, you know, talking to your friends really helps. <laughs> yeah. 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 It does. It's very emotional. It, you know, while you, when you're making it, you're just overwhelmed, I think. And especially right now, having just done this, it's very overwhelming. And I'm just about to get on a plane and go do something else. So it's like cultural whip whiplash. <laughs> I'm going to do the Arab side of me in uh, Toledo in a few days. So I'm like getting my headspace into what that's going to be. Um, so yeah, you ideally, like we're talking about, you have breaks yeah <laughs> you have like time um and life just isn't like that you just have to roll with it so so yeah i'm going to talk to my friend who's a therapist tomorrow and like talk to her about um everything i observed in alaska and it'll be great to hear what she has to say if you don't mind me asking what is you know maybe one of the things that you want to talk to your therapist about? <laughs> well, uh, let me be clear. She's not technically my therapist. She is my friend. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> she's like, I'm not paying her. She's doing a, we're going to chat for free. It'll be, it'll be wonderful. Okay. <laughs> um, so I want to talk to her about colonialization and how it was impossible for me to see what that looked like growing up here until I discovered what it, what another reality might look like in another place. Mm -hmm. You can't even see it growing up here. You just, at least me, being a privileged person of economic status, not growing up marginalized, you just can't even see it here, I think. And then you go to a place like Kodiak, which has definitely been colonized, <laughs> let me be clear. It's definitely mm -hmm. seen its share of very sad things happen. Yeah. So I want to talk to her about, also from her perspective as a Hawaiian woman, you know, like what she has observed, because she has also a similar upbringing to me. She's privileged in a sense compared to her parents. You know, we both went to the most expensive private school in Hawaii, um, which Barack Obama graduated from, et cetera, et cetera. So we both have this perspective. And I'm just like curious to hear what she thinks of what I tell her. Do you find that your friend can maybe help distill what you've given her and give it back to you? Or does she maybe sympathize or empathize? Um, I hope she'll be able to distill. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Because a good psychologist is going to correct, course correct some things, stories you might be telling yourself. But I, I also want to fact check what I observed with with what she, you know, with her experience having worked with the Native people here, mm -hmm. you know, and she's Filipino. I want to fact check with her experience and also what she knows to be the case with the metrics with Hawaiians and, you know, what I assume to be parallel situation statistics. Yeah, you want maybe these thoughts that you have to be either validated or invalidated. Exactly. It's really important to get, you know, 
some sort of objective reality out of all this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I, I, as you, as you are, you're a journalist. I look at this like very seriously. Like, yeah, you know, even though I'm making portraits that are fictional portraits, they're based on empirical information, and I want to make sure I'm getting the right empirical information. Do you have any techniques for recovering? from the weight of doing this research and doing these interviews, maybe something you do for your mental health? Yeah, I try to do mindfulness. I was doing this with my son yesterday as we were driving to uh, get our vaccinations. And, you know, I realized, oh my gosh, it's been like a month since we did any kind of guided meditation. So as I was driving, I was trying to like think through some beautiful experiences we had in Alaska together, the moment as we were driving, thinking about the rainstorm we were, and just being in the moment, mm -hmm. in that moment presently and not being in the future or the past is like really, really helpful. Um, so if I haven't had that stillness for a long time, I really try to seek it out. And I know if I can definitely feel myself getting on edge if it's been a long time since I've had that stillness. So yeah, I try to try to work that in where I can, which is admittedly not often <laughs> enough ever. Yeah. It's like drinking water. You're like, oh yeah, I need to drink water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that's great that you do guided meditations because my, my sister is really into yoga and she turned me on to this app. I forget the name of it, but, um, you know, I, I do these guided meditations and every single time I do them, I'm like, I need to do this more often. But <laughs> something that I really love in in a few of them is, you know, I listen to it before bed and mm -hmm. there's this one where there's a couple of them that do this, but they say this thing that I love and it's, you know, you've you've done everything you could today. You know, you did your best. And now it's time to move on, you know, and I, I, I love that because it's like so often I'll be laying down and I'm thinking of all the stuff that I didn't do, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. and all the stuff that I should have done. But, you know, getting into this meditative state where, you know, you're you're being fully present, you're listening to these like affirmations and they're telling you like, hey, you did everything that you could do. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, um, yeah, we can only do so much. I mean, I don't struggle with the task list so much as I do the emotions that come from people because mm. I am in that space of like <clears throat> feeling and interpreting those emotions directly as, as direct as you can. I feel like, you know, it's the muse, right? Like mm. there is something to the muse. It's like that person is in you and <laughs> there is no separation. I mean, if you look at the quantum, uh, mechanics of it. It's like observer and the observed are one. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so there is that space that I go into for an artistic. So it's trying to empty that space. For me, it's emptying that out and just being in that moment. Something I keep thinking is, how do you make sense of all of this? Mm -hmm. You know, there are so many facets to it. There's immigration, there's the socioeconomic issues, the cost of living, mm -hmm. and then, you know, the umbrella that all of that's under is capitalism. 
I'm so glad you brought that up because if you weren't going to bring it up, I was going to bring it up. (laughs) (laughs) It is, it is, it is the taking of our human labor capital and putting it in other people's hands, the excess of which ends up in other people's hands. And that's just widening. The gap is just increasing and becoming more and more exponentially, the billionaires, et cetera. It's just more and more and more. And why is it that we see these crazy movies about like post-apocalyptic, you know, people colonizing other planets because we've destroyed our own and then everybody else is left to die. Mm -hmm. It's so dark, right? I mean, it's just like we have to get away from that, you know, in vision of the future. And um, yeah, I mean, for me, I'm still unlearning the 70 years of propaganda against, you know, socialism, to be straight up, you know, and um, what that might even look like, or communism for that part, for that matter, which Mm. is like the C word. So which you can't even, God forbid, you know, you publish something with that word, and it's like, you know, you'll never get any anywhere in the world. Um, And so there are resources out there that will help us understand how to just make sense of you know, all of this excess going into fewer hands while our world is burning, while our world is flooding, while species are dying. Sure, mm-hmm. we might have sunsets in a hundred years, but who's gonna enjoy those sunsets and where, mm-hmm. right? And so underlying all of that is a system of economics that's just frankly not working for us right now. And and it's not to say that we all have to go kumbaya and go live on a commune somewhere. That's not at all what I'm saying, but we have to at least examine how things are working for us or not working for us. For example, the housing crisis. Are we, at some point we have to decide, are houses for people or are houses for making money? We have to decide. And it's not that they're mutually, well, it's not that you can't make money, you can't make a dollar off your house if you sell it, but we do have to decide our laws, our policies, what are they gonna favor in the end? Are they gonna favor like investment? Banks going in and buying up every, the, the limited inventory mm-hmm. that exists. Are we going, is that where we're headed in every city all over? Because, you know, other places don't do it that way. We don't have to do it that way. And, you know, this is becoming an issue everywhere. It's not just in the expensive cities. It's just going to get more expensive everywhere. So we just have to decide what's right, you know, and what, what we want as a collective. What do you think it's going to take to get there? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. It's a tough question. (laughs) I don't know. I wish I don't have the freaking answers to quote (laughs) E.J. David. (laughs) We're just going to have to decide that's what we want. Enough of us are going to have to decide. Maybe it'll be my son's generation that decides. You know what? You guys were like bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. We're just tired of it. We don't want to live like with floods and you know, all the rest. We don't, we want to be able to afford it. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to take, or maybe it'll take very well happen soon. Who's to say? Mm -hmm. You're working on a podcast called Land and People Mm -hmm. and an interview series called Drift, Immigration and Identity in America. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like those podcasts, putting those together, are they helping you make sense of all of this information? Yes, definitely. Definitely. I do feel like it's something that I can do, amplify people's voices, just like what you do, Cody. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, 
do you feel it's important, you know, because these things are all inextricably entwined, right? Um, but I'm trying to separate them just for the purposes of like telling people stories, having immigrants and, you know, people everywhere connect with um, the immigrant story, which is all of our stories. Um, you know, for those of us who weren't in, in America before, before in the before times. Um, so yeah, that that's part of it. And then, um, and then land and people getting at exactly these conversations about land, really, that is right for now, a look at practitioners and um, people with ancestral ties to the land through their work, through their everyday lives, how they care for the land, what they do, what the different approaches are in the Pacific. So mm -hmm. it, where it's really taking that approach and in a way cataloging, you know, what the, what the land looks like now, because it's not going to be the same in the future. So we really want to know what does, what do these beautiful sacred places look like now? Cause they are changing. They're ever changing. They will be changing. So yeah, it's all those things. Mm -hmm. Do you think that your family heritage continues to play into your motivation to pursue work that examines immigration and everything that that entails? It does. And it will always, because I always think of myself as done as having threaded the needle, not through anything I ever did, but through my birth, my birthright, you know, that is why I have so much. And I often think about if my ancestors were trying to come to this country today, they couldn't, hmm. they just couldn't. It wouldn't have been possible. We brought them over for cheap labor. That still happens to some degree. It's just hard. It's really, really hard now. Um, so I am just feel always feeling lucky that through my birth, I inherited so much and I want to give that back to people mm -hmm. who are trying to get here or trying to make a better life or just trying to exist. Yesterday when we were talking, you you were talking about the interviews that you've done and you're like i just need to get these stories out there you know is there something you're hoping to accomplish by getting these interviews out there yes i'd love the world to hear about how filipinos in alaska got to alaska in the first place that's that's one part of it because it's they're amazing. Like actually the physical part of it, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's pretty incredible. Some of them. And then the other part is for them and folks to hear their own voices about how their identities are being shaped and how they're formed and how they, I mean, one question I had for everyone was, and it's a false binary. I realized that, which was, do you feel more American or do you feel more Filipino? Or in some cases, do you feel more Californian or do you feel more Alaskan? You know, um, and I wanted, I wanted to know where they w exist in that psychological space. And they all gave me different answers. So that was so interesting to hear. Yeah, that is interesting. Because it's just the transitory nature of identity, which we all, we all are, we all are trying to deal with the otherness. It's like the human condition, <laughs> yeah. right? It's like, and then I read somewhere, this is so great. This is not my idea, but that we all are immigrants 
by the end of our lives because the very places that we grew up in will have changed so much that we have don't even recognize them and don't necessarily have ties to them. Mm -hmm. So we will always be grappling with the otherness question. It's just very acute in the immigrant community. And you can really tell by how people talk about, generally, I should say, talk about the places that they're from. You know, Mm -hmm. for example, if they're from a city, you know, the traffic has gotten worse, Mm -hmm. you know, um, it's so busy everywhere, you know, like there's these, there's these things that everybody in every city that, that I've ever been to, at least in the United States, and they're talking about how much busier it is or, you know, the politics or whatever. So it's like, yeah, you're right. You know, they are strangers in the place that they grew up in. Mm-hmm. And that has happened from the beginning of time. It's just we're seeing this acceleration of that with globalization and, mm-hmm. you know, rapid environmental changes. It's just happening on this really crazy time scale that we're all not prepared for with our primate brains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have these tools. We have these technological tools. And again, this isn't my idea. I heard someone say this. You know, we have these technological tools that, you know, are, are still in the primate or are still like operating with our primate brains instead mm-hmm. of the newer one. So <laughs> <laughs> it's trying to use the newer one that we're struggling with, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully we can figure it out. Yeah. And, you know, we will figure it out and we'll just keep faking it until we make it, you know, and, yeah. <laughs> or something. <laughs> <laughs> or we'll just try to make whatever changes we can in our own day-to-day lives. Like, I don't know, driving a little less or whatever it might be. Just thinking, thinking through decisions we make or not make. I don't want to like, oh, now I'm like getting on my full on high horse. So this is not to (laughs) indict people for driving. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, because I drive a catalytic converter. Let's just be perfect, full disclosure. I have my power on in my studio, which is 90%, no, 100% fossil fueled. I don't think we even have, like Hawaii is so like slow on the renewables. We're getting better. We're getting Mm -hmm. better, but it's not where we should be. So yeah, I'm part of that situation too. (laughs) Well, I guess the the important part is, is that we're trying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we are. We're trying. We need to do more, all of us. Myself, yeah. my fault, starting with me. <laughs> you know, Melissa, that does it for my questions. You know, I want to thank you for spending this time with me today and, you know, answering my questions. Oh my gosh, Cody, it's been such a pleasure. And you've had such great questions. And so I so enjoyed talking with you. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I think we covered, let's see, we covered capitalism, globalization, immigration, extinction. I, is there more? <laughs> no, I think we figured it all out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so fun, Cody. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors.